We're going to take a break from our series in First Peter this morning because it so happens that a national holiday falls uh, right on the Lord's Day. And you know very well that the Lord's Day takes precedence, uh, not just takes precedence, but there is no comparison between the two. We celebrate the liberation that we have in Jesus Christ because of his resurrection from the dead today. But it is, as a matter of fact, from a cultural standpoint, the day we also celebrate the liberation of our country, the United States of America. And I'd like to preach, uh, because of God's providence, bringing these two days together as he has, I'd like to preach a sermon appropriate to this day. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus, the 25th chapter. Leviticus 25, and we'll take for our scripture reading the first 19 verses. Hear now God's word at Leviticus 25, beginning at the first verse. And Jehovah spake unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto Jehovah. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, in six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard and gather in the fruits thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath unto Jehovah. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard. That which groweth of itself of thy harvest thou shalt not reap. And the grapes of thy undressed vine thou shalt not gather. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. And the Sabbath of the land shall be for food for you, for thee and for thy servant and for thy maid and for thy hired servant and for thy stranger who sojourns with thee. And for thy cattle and for the beasts that are in thy land shall all the increase thereof be for food. And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years. And there shall be unto thee the days of seven Sabbaths of years, even forty and nine years. Then shalt thou send abroad the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement shall ye send abroad the trumpet throughout all your land. And ye shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you. You shall return every man unto his possession, and you shall return every man unto his family. A jubilee shall that fiftieth year be unto you. Ye shall not sow, neither reap that which groweth of itself in it, nor gather the grapes in it of the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy unto you. Ye shall eat the increase thereof out of the field. In this year of jubilee, ye shall return every man unto his possession. And if thou sell anything unto thy neighbor, or buy of thy neighbor's hand, ye shall not wrong one another. According to the number of years after the jubilee, thou shalt buy of thy neighbor, and according unto the number of years of the crops, he shall sell unto thee. According to the multitude of the years, thou shalt increase the price thereof, and according to the fewness of the years, thou shalt diminish the price of it. For the number of the crops doth he sell unto thee, and ye shall not wrong one another. Thou shalt fear thy God, for I am Jehovah your God. Wherefore ye shall do my statutes, and keep mine ordinances, and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land in safety. And the land shall yield its fruit, and ye shall eat your fill, and dwell therein in safety. And thus far the reading of God's holy word. I want to begin this morning by pointing you to the power and the importance of symbols. To the power and importance of symbols. Even though we sometimes think in modern America that we're not too caught up in symbolism or things like that because we are practical down the earth, very pragmatic kind of people. The fact is that symbols have great importance to us in America. Just think about the t-shirts the young people wear, and some old people like me as well. Just think of the symbols that are on those t-shirts. 
whether they be for sports teams or for universities or for products or whatever it may be, we put a great deal of stock in these symbols. And corporations pay huge sums of money to have logos developed, for instance, because they know the importance of capturing an idea or getting imprinted in people's minds something that will remind them of their company, what it stands for. <clears throat> a few years ago, when a church that I was associated with ran a Christian school, I remember that we were really kind of taken back at how much it would cost to get somebody who was even associated with our school to do the graphic art and development of a logo for us. This is a very big business. We pay attention to symbols. But sometimes symbols fail us. Sometimes symbols are inappropriate. Sometimes symbols lose their real meaning and become something of a mockery. I thought of that especially when I recently toured uh, Moscow. Everywhere I went, there was the symbol of the hammer and sickle. Um, I'm so accustomed from school days as a child in America to react to that symbol with a kind of disdain and say, ooh, that's our enemy, or this is bad, or something like that. But everywhere I went there in Moscow, that symbol of the hammer and sickle was to be found. I remember we got in late on a Friday evening and settled into our hotel. And the very next day on Saturday morning, the first thing we did is we were going to see the Lenin Museum in Red Square and so forth. So we had to go into the metro. We had to go down into the subway system of Moscow. And I was taken back that the dome in the metro, which is right above the escalator going down to the subway, has a huge hammer and sickle emblazoned in gold. So I took a picture of that. Well, I soon learned that I couldn't take pictures every time I saw a hammer and sickle around like that because they were everywhere. When I spoke at the Moscow City Council building, um, the very uh, columns uh, uh, in the room separating the windows down both the right and left-hand side of the auditorium, every one of them had a huge engraved hammer and sickle there. The only way they'll be removed is if somebody comes in and sandblasts those things off or breaks down the building and starts again. The hammer and sickle. But what an inappropriate symbol. Inappropriate for a number of reasons. Where can we begin? First of all, the hammer and sickle are chosen, as you know, because they, they stand for industrial work and for farming. Okay? And this is going to be the symbol of the Soviet state. Now, what is not in their logo for this wonderful worker's paradise, or what it was supposed to be, is nothing symbolizing capital investment, the time, risk, and so forth that managers put into work. And that's because it's one of the glaring faults of Marxist theory, and as well as Soviet practice, that they despise the input of management. It's the workers that are important. But if you stop and think about it, and today's sermon's not on this so much, but just for a moment, stop and think about it. If there isn't somebody who will buy machinery and take the risk that this factory can produce something that will sell or be beneficial, useful, there aren't going to be any hammers put to use and other tools as well. If somebody doesn't buy land and seed and fertilizer and all the rest, does not manage the fields, does not sell the crops, you don't need a sickle. But the hammer and the sickle become the symbol, you see, of what the Soviet Union was going to become. And it did not. That is now an embarrassment because the workers' paradise became hell on earth for the workers. That hammer and sickle still stand there as the symbol of what that was supposed to be. You know, it's pretty easy, I think, for us to sit there and to listen to this little diatribe against the hammer and sickle. What is the symbol of America? What, in our culture, has the same function, the same prominence, the same distribution and constant appearance as the hammer and sickle? It's the Liberty Bell. And we remember that especially today on the 4th of July because the Liberty Bell has throughout the decades and 
years of our country stood for the liberty that we enjoy as Americans. The Liberty Bell is a pre-war um, of independence relic. It was first hung in the year 1753 in the newly finished State House of Pennsylvania. The State House of Pennsylvania would eventually come to be called Independence Hall. The Liberty Bell was rung on the adoption of the Declaration of Independence, July 4th. 1776, although some uh, naysayer historians will tell you it was really July 5th. But the fact is, we as a country remember it as July 4th, and whether it is that exactly or not is not important. But the Liberty Bell was rung on the declaration of our independence from Great Britain. And that ringing of the bell inaugurated an Independence Day tradition in our country, which except from the years 1777 and 1778 when the British occupied the city of Philadelphia, except for those two years, the bell was rung every year on July 4th as a way of commencing the celebration of our independence as Americans. It was rung every day, excuse me, every year until the year 1846. Of course, anybody who's been a tourist in Philadelphia or reads your, uh, your high school history books, you know what happened. There was a small crack in the bell originally, and it was enlarged and enlarged until the year 1846. It could no longer um, be bolted and, uh, and brought together, and so the bell would no longer ring as it could. It couldn't be sounded. But this Liberty Bell, crack and all in it, has become the symbol, like the hammer and sickle in Russia, has become the symbol in America for our struggle for independence. And as you know, that original bell is still housed in um, Philadelphia, now in Liberty Bell Pavilion, as it's called. Tourists go every year. In fact, I understand that um, slightly more tourists go to see the Liberty Bell than, than go to Independence Hall to see where the Declaration was signed and so forth, which is interesting in itself. How important is that symbol? When, um, when I first went to Philadelphia many years ago because I was contemplating seminary work in that city, I remember that the one souvenir I bought and wanted to bring back with me was a little replica of the Liberty Bell. So today I want to talk to you about the Liberty Bell and the appropriateness or perhaps inappropriateness of that symbol for us as Americans. What is inscribed upon the Liberty Bell? I wonder if any of you recognized it as we read it in our scripture reading this morning. It comes from Leviticus 25, verse 10. What is inscribed are these words. Proclaim liberty throughout the land. Now remember, this bell was not made for the occasion of July 4th, 1776. This bell was made and hung and rung for years prior to 1776. And so it isn't simply that we can look back at this and say, well, you know, those, those American colonists were so interested in putting a pious veneer upon their endeavor to be free of Britain that they took just any words, you know, from the Bible that fit the occasion and put them on the bell. There is a reason why that bell was inscribed with words from Leviticus 25. And that is because in the days and years leading up to our independence from Great Britain, we were a nation that looked to God and to his word for our direction. It was not unusual to have public symbols, have Christian symbols and words attached to them in this way. Now can you imagine what would happen in our day if there was to be a new bell made to commemorate some great national occasion? Would we dare get away with it? 
having a Bible verse put upon the bell? Would not the ACLU be very active to make sure that no one had the impression that there's any religious commitment, background, or application to our civil life? But there was a day when America saw its freedom, not first of all as freedom from Britain, but saw its freedom first and foremost in terms of the declaration and grace of God in the gospel. And I realize that if I were doing this out in the public square, you know, with everybody, I'd be vilified for saying what I just did, but I don't care. I mean, if anybody wants to engage in public debate, I can do that sort of thing. I'd be happy to debate this. I'd be happy to embarrass people with the facts. But it is a fact. And I want you to know this, that for all of the things which can be said about the faults of our founding fathers, and there were many, for all of the inconsistency, for all the theological mistakes that might be pointed to, for all the failure to live up to their Christian profession that might be mentioned. The fact is that this nation began with a conception of itself as honoring God and his word. And thus, the Liberty Bell, it just so happens, the ACLU be damned, has a Bible verse on it. And it's that Bible verse I want us to pay attention to and what that is all about. Proclaim liberty throughout the land. But now, it may surprise you, if you were listening to the scripture reading this morning, to find the context in which those words are found. There aren't many Christians who could give you an intelligent rendition or answer about the Sabbath years and the Jubilee year as it's found in the law of God. We so ignore, as Christians, the Old Testament today. We so ignore the law of God. We are so often told that the law of Moses is something to hate and to despise and, oh, aren't we glad we're free of it now? We have such an antipathy to the Old Testament that it's no surprise that we're also blithering idiots when it comes to the Old Testament. I know people who cannot tell you whether Moses or Noah lived first, cannot tell you whether David or Solomon was father or son, cannot tell you who the major prophets of the Old Testament are. And these are Christians, professing Christians anyway. Well, not everybody's quite as bad as what I've just described, but even those who aren't quite that bad still have a very difficult time telling you what the law of God says. I think most of you in this congregation know I've spent a number of years studying and defending the law of God, and I'm ashamed at how little I know of the law of God. Now often I have to go back and check, and boy, I didn't know about that, and so forth. So I tell you, there are a number of Christians who could not tell you a thing about Sabbath years. Sabbath years? They are, they understand the Sabbath day. How can we expect them to understand the Sabbath year? And then the Jubilee, the Sabbath of Sabbath years, the 49th declaration of Jubilee in the land, what's that all about? Well, I don't believe that those who inscribed proclaim liberty throughout the land upon what has now become our Liberty Bell, I don't believe for a moment that they fail to understand the context of those words. And many people will object to their willingness to use them despite this context. We'll get into that in just a few moments because I want you to see that that liberty that is proclaimed throughout the land is a liberty understood within the context of God's sovereignty and in particular his gracious salvation. It was a liberty understood in terms of the one who fulfilled all that the Jubilee looked ahead to and declared that only in his word and the truth that is there could men find true freedom. Those who inscribed the Liberty Bell and many with them understood these things. Indeed, throughout the history of our nation, probably up until the time of the war between the states, but even then, relatively, or if you will, by comparison to where we are today, we were still a nation that understood itself in Christian terms. A good example of that, if you have your hymnals, let's just do this for a moment, open your hymnals to number 616 in the Trinity Hymnal. 616 
And you'll notice there at the um, top of the page what the title of this tune is. It's called National Hymn. And I want you to look over on the left-hand side at the top, the author of the words, Daniel Roberts. And when did he write these words for the National Hymn? 1876. Did we think about that? The centennial celebration of the Declaration of Independence. We just went through the bicentennial a few years ago. Well, for those of us who are older, it seems like just a few years ago, but it hasn't been that long. Let's listen to these words from a hundred years previously and a hundred years after the ringing of the Liberty Bell. God of our fathers, whose almighty hand leans forth in beauty all the starry land, of shining worlds and splendor through the skies, our grateful songs before thy throne arise. Thy love divine hath led us in the past, in this free land by thee our lot is cast. Be thou our ruler, guardian, guide, and stay. Thy word our law, thy paths our chosen way. From war's alarms, from deadly pestilence, be thy strong arm our ever sure defense. Thy true religion in our hearts increase, thy bounteous goodness nourish us in peace. Refresh thy people on their toilsome way, lead us from night to never-ending day. Fill all our lives with love and grace divine, and glory, laud, and praise be ever thine. It is inconceivable for the writer of this hymn and for many people who worship God with him, inconceivable to understand the liberty enjoyed in America as somehow not fully and extricably entwined with the freedom that God gives by his grace bondage of sin and the goodness and blessing that God gives as we respond in obedience to his law. In fact, that second verse is really incredible. I wonder how many people who are antagonistic to the idea that the law of God binds our civil magistrates today, how many people even in Presbyterian churches using the Trinity hymnal feel when they read, thy word our law thy paths our chosen way. We've come a long way, baby. It hasn't been good. As I've already indicated, in our day and age, the ACLU would have nothing of such a national hymn, would have nothing of the idea of a Bible verse inscribed upon a national symbol like the bell. It's not just the ACLU. They're not the ones that have me uh, ticked off today. Our whole nation has made the Liberty Bell as much a mockery as the economic destitution of Russia has made the hammer and sickle a mockery as a symbol for Soviet power. I want you to stop and think for a moment about our national disgrace. Recently, uh, my friend in Brooklyn, Steve Schlissel, wrote these words, and they were very, uh, I think, very pointed and appropriate. He talked about how bad things have become in New York City, and I don't want you to think that somehow New York City is just, you know, out there on an island somewhere and uh, isolated from the rest of the world. Uh, like Los Angeles and Chicago and Houston, New York is just one of those major cities that um, seems to get the logical implications of our national life sooner than the rest, but it all comes about even through, you know, the midland of America. Anyway, Steve writes, the assault on our sensibilities is taking bold new strides daily. We're facing an avalanche of smut. Fully nude males and females will soon be seen openly in movies and on billboards, on television and magazines, and probably on streets. The homosexual agenda is gaining momentum. Many of us don't realize that this particular battle is over. The homos have won. The issue is not acceptance. The issue was to get homosexuality discussed 
since America has AIDS, that is, it does not have the moral capital to resist diseased ideas, all that is necessary to gain acceptance is to get a matter discussed in terms of rights. The homo lobby wanted homosexuality out in the open, talked about. They won, folks. They've won. You can't listen to a news show or pick up a paper without reading about them. Last week was Gay Pride Week in New York. They flooded the top of the Empire State Building in lavender light, which is a symbol of homosexuality, as a tribute to sodomy for all the city to see. I walked into a public library last week, and there was a stack of newspapers called NYC, New York Connections, the magazine written by and for New York youth. Gay pride was emblazoned across the front page of the tabloid in three-inch high letters. Underneath were other slogans like lesbian rights, stop homophobia, and lift the ban. The magazine is funded by, among others, get this, AT&T, CBS, the New York Times Foundation, New York Daily News, Time Warner, Manufacturers Hanover, Chemical Bank, Manhattan Borough, President's of the President's Office, the New York State Division for Youth, and the New York City Department of Youth Services. He goes on to talk more about the filth and the disgust that he finds in this magazine. He tells us this paper is given out free in all the public schools and public libraries in New York City. And I continue reading. Our civic rulers, our media, our banks, our leading corporations have a youth program. And then he quotes, the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Psalm 2. The West is on a suicidal course to become post-biblical man. God's law, God's word, God's Christ are all hated and scorned. The result for man is not his imagined freedom, but rather his degradation and death. Where can you flee from his presence? Wherever you go, behold, he is there. And then he quotes, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the sun, lest you be destroyed. Blessed are all who take refuge in and then finally, Steve says, it is against this background of collective institutional apostasy that Christian ministry today must be viewed. The societal supports, opinions, taboos, laws, language, social conventions that once bolstered the church's proclamation and influence have withered. You can't go to sleep for 100 years as the North American church has done, and wake up to a house in order. We are living in a house that's on fire. Well, I wish I could write with the stirring words that he does, but he has it right. The church, for a hundred years, has been lulled to sleep and has accepted a civic kind of religion and a watered-down, latitudinal Christianity, which eventually gives up the truthfulness of the Scripture, the idea that we believe the Bible from cover to cover, that it is to be applied to our lives. In fact, it gives up the whole notion of a sanctified Christian experience in favor of a free grace that knows no boundaries, where God just says, I forgive and I really don't care about sin, so go right on sinning. A church that does not proclaim God's standards, does not believe in God's standards, and therefore we cannot be surprised that the society right round about the church has decayed for its failure to follow God's standards. You look at the large churches of our nation today. I mean, the number of incidents of an exception to this rule would not be that great. You look at the largest churches, those that have been here for years, those that at one time, if maybe not today, boasted hundreds, thousands of members, and what do you see in their neighborhoods round about? What has the church brought to America in the last hundred years or more? 
as it brought a vibrant, gospel-proclaiming Christianity that's light in a dark world, scattering the darkness of sin, as it brought compassion and social programs, as it brought righteousness and integrity, you know the answer. Many people won't even go to their large churches at night because they don't want to go into that kind of neighborhood after dark. Well, it's not just the churches. Look at Washington, D.C. What is all around the monuments of our civil power? You know, it's nice to look at these brilliant postcards we have of Washington. It's nice when you're a tourist to only see the Lincoln Memorial and the Jefferson Memorial, you know, and the White House, and on and on and on. But anybody who knows the area, anybody who has traveled much there, who's lived there, knows that's a postage stamp in comparison to everything Washington, D.C. is. It's a very limited, narrow corridor of what that area is like. And the worst crime in the nation takes place right in the shadows of the powers that be. The highest murder rate in the nation in Washington, D.C. It's gotten so bad, maybe some of you have seen this on the news. You've read it in the magazines. Tourists now don't want to come to Washington, D.C. because tourists are being killed on the streets. If they dare wander from that narrow corridor of nicely cleansed tourist attractions, their lives are in danger. What is it? Is this a wake-up call? Why is it that our churches don't sanctify their neighborhoods and even the powers that be in Washington, D.C. live in the midst of violence and degradation? What has happened to us as a nation? What's happened to us is the same thing that happened to the Soviet Union. And that may sound insulting, but it's time for the insult to be declared. We have declared certain ideals, and we have not lived up to them. And what we declared in our national logo, in our symbol of American independence, is proclaim liberty throughout the land. And instead of liberty, we enjoy slavery. Think of the poor people who are enslaved to their homes because they fear to go out in a dangerous society. Think of the people who are enslaved economically because of the sins of our leaders, the tax burdens and the unemployment and all the rest that comes from their not honoring the freedom of the marketplace. Think of the slavery that we have in the name of all of our entertainment freedom, all the smut and pornography. Think of the slavery of children that grow up in broken homes because no one honors marriage anymore. And the list goes on and on. We proclaim liberty throughout the land and we live as slaves. So let's go back to the Bible. See if we can find some help for understanding what the Liberty Bell was all about when it proclaimed liberty throughout the land. Leviticus 25.10, as I've already indicated, is where we find this declaration. And you shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. On the 50th year. What is this 50th year? What is this Jubilee year all about? It would take probably a couple of long lectures in theology and biblical exposition to um, do an adequate job to that. You don't want me to do that, I know, but I would like to give you a thumbnail sketch. To understand, you have to begin with the weekly Sabbath. God, having saved his people Israel from the bondage of Egypt, and having promised them a land where they would enjoy freedom, where milk and honey would flow, and they'd be protected from their enemies, where they would know relatively little disease, where their crops would be prosperous, 
God having granted that to them required that they would remember that their freedom and their life was given by him and so he said every week you show that you trust me for your blessing and you rest on the seventh day now if we were in another setting I'd be happy to talk to you about the biblical and theological background to the Sabbath that comes from the creation ordinance as well but as most Bible students know, there are two lines of rationale for the weekly Sabbath that we find in the Bible. One is the creation ordinance of God, and the other is the redemptive work of God in the Exodus and the granting of this land of rest. In fact, that's what it was known as entering into God's rest. If you'd like some homework on this Sabbath afternoon, go and read Hebrews 3 and 4 where the author of Hebrews talks about the sin of apostasy and falling back from Christ against the background of Israel's refusal to enter into God's ordained rest. And God there says, but I have ordained a continuing Sabbath for my people. So the Sabbath is tied up with the liberty and the salvation and the prosperity that God grants by his grace. And every week we remember that. I think it should tell you something about the weakness of the American church that so few churches even preach to their people that they ought to honor the Sabbath. Ah, what difference does that make? Well, it makes a great deal of difference to God because he declares through the prophet Isaiah that it is his delight. And if we would walk with him, we should delight in what he delights in. Jesus had to explain that the Sabbath was made for man. It's what we call in Greek the dative of advantage. Made for man for the advantage, for the blessing, for the goodness of man. It's a blessing from God. To be able to say, I don't have to go out there and work seven days a week. I don't have to push myself like that. Because I honor God at the beginning of the week, resting in him. And the six days of labor flow out of that, knowing that he will provide for me. There's something similar in that, uh, it seems to me, to why we give our tithes. And I trust you all do that. Um, I'm supposed to not apologize for these things, and I'm supposed to preach boldly on them. But you know I don't often you know, talk to you about your contributions. But God requires that a tenth of everything you earn be given to him. And he requires that that be the first tenth, not the last tenth. Not the tenth when it's convenient. Not after I pay the bills and everything's okay. You pay that tenth when you have no idea how you're going to make it through the rest of the month honoring God. Because he says, those who honor me, I honor. And so right off the top, we give 10% to God as a token that we trust him. Because we know that he owns 100% of that which is ours, and a tenth is given back only as a way of saying, I know that it's all yours, God. And so with our time as well, one day in seven, the day ordained by God, the day of Jesus' resurrection in the new covenant, has been set aside to celebrate the freedom and the salvation and the prosperity that is ours as we rest in God. And so there's the weekly Sabbath. But God had more for the Israelites of old. He said, not only do I want you to celebrate a weekly Sabbath, I want you to set aside every seventh year as a Sabbath year as well. And certain blessings came. And there was to be a resting of the land and the animals and so forth. You think it's hard to, to rest one day in seven when you say, oh, no, there's certain things at home that have to be done, certain homework assignments that have to be done. There's certain things I have to get ready for work. How would you like to have to put a whole year aside and say, God, I trust you, I enjoy your blessing, you'll take care of me. But then God, in this symbolism of sevens, not only sets aside the seventh day and the seventh year, he says the seventh cycle of years of seven shall you set aside as well. And so the 49th becomes a Sabbath year, and the 50th then crowns it all as the Jubilee. And it's in that context that on the Day of Atonement, anybody have ears to hear? On the Day of Atonement, the trumpets blast throughout the land, and God says, proclaim liberty 
to all the land and its inhabitants on the Day of Atonement. God's people learned thereby that their true freedom and prosperity was found only in the atonement that God provided, only in the grace and liberation that he granted them when they were once slaves in Egypt. In Leviticus 25, I wanted us to read on. There are details that we could talk about sometime regarding the Jubilee. I wanted to read on to the verse, the 18th verse, where God says in the context of the declaration of Jubilee freedom and liberation, you shall do my statutes and keep mine ordinances and do them, and you shall dwell in the land in safety. Now there's a downside to this. The Jubilee was a grand declaration of freedom. By the way, those who had been enslaved for financial debt were set free in the Jubilee. Those who had alienated their family land regained them in the Jubilee. The Jubilee was a wonderful, I mean, talk about independence. It was the great year of manumission, the great year of restoration. It was nothing less than a symbol of the renewal of all of creation that God was going to bring someday when his kingdom dominates the affairs on earth. But there is a downside. God says, you enjoy this freedom. You enjoy this liberty in the context of obeying my statutes, worshiping me and following me. terrible thing when people lose sight of the preconditions of their blessedness. And God said, I don't want you to lose sight of that. You enjoy blessing because I grant it. You enjoy blessing because you walk with me. You enjoy blessing because of my grace, my sovereignty over you. So verse 18 says, we are to keep the commandments of God and we would dwell in safety. The downside is found in Deuteronomy 28. <clears throat> there was a time, 200 plus years ago, when the people in America were not afraid to claim the corporate promises to Israel of old, right on their liberty belt, proclaim liberty throughout the land. Because we as a people, even as Israel as a people were called, we as a people have chosen to honor God, to follow his word, to find our liberty in his son, to enjoy his grace as the source of blessing. Well, if we as a nation were willing to proclaim liberty and blessedness by looking at what God said to Israel as a nation, we need to hear what God threatened Israel as a nation as well. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of Jehovah thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Cursed shalt thou be in the city, and cursed shalt thou be in the field. Cursed shall be thy basket and thy kneading troth. Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy ground, the increase of thy cattle and the young of thy flock. Cursed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. Jehovah will send upon thee cursing, discomfiture, and rebuke in all that thou puttest thy hand unto to do, until thou be destroyed and until thou perish quickly because of the evil of thy doings whereby thou hast forsaken me. Jehovah will make the pestilence cleave unto thee until he have consumed thee from off the land whither thou goest in to possess it. Jehovah will smite thee with consumption and with fever and with inflammation and with fiery heat and with the sword and with blasting and with mildew and they shall pursue thee until thou perish. And the sky that is over your head shall be brass, and the earth that is under it shall be iron. Jehovah will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven shall it come down upon thee until thou be destroyed. 
Jehovah will cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one way against them, and shalt flee seven ways before them. And thou shalt be tossed to and fro among all the kingdoms of the earth, and thy dead body shall be food unto all the birds of the heavens and unto the beasts of the earth. And there shall be none to frighten them away. <clears throat> Jehovah will smite thee with the boil of Egypt and with the scurvy and with the itch whereof thou canst not be healed. Jehovah will smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. Thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness. Thou shalt not prosper in thy ways. And thou shalt be only oppressed and robbed always, and there shall be none to save you. Thou shalt betroth a wife, and another man shall lie with her. Thou shalt build a house, and thou shalt not dwell therein. Thou shalt plant a vineyard, and thou shalt not use the fruit thereof. Thine ox shall be slain before thine eyes, thou shalt not eat thereof. Thine ass shall be violently taken away from before thy face, and shall not be restored to thee. Thy sheep shall be given unto thine enemies, and thou shalt have none to save thee. Thy sons and thy daughters shall be given unto another people, and then I shall look and fail with longing for them all the day, and there shall be not in the power of thy hand. The fruit of thy ground and all thy labors shall a nation which thou knowest not eat up. Thou shalt be not only thou shalt be only oppressed and crushed always, so that thou shalt be mad for the sight of thine eyes, what thou shalt Jehovah will bring thee, and thy king whom thou shalt set over thee unto a nation thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers. And there shalt thou serve other gods, wood and stone, and thou shalt become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among the peoples, whither Jehovah shall lead thee. Thou shalt carry much seed out of the field, and shalt gather little in, for the locust shall consume it. Thou shalt plant vineyards and dress them, but thou shalt neither drink of the wine, nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. Thou shalt have olive trees throughout all thy borders, but thou shalt not anoint thyself with oil, for thine olive shall cast off its fruit. <clears throat> thou shalt beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be thine, for they shall go into captivity. All thy trees and the fruit of thy ground shall the locusts possess. The sojourner that is in the midst of thee shall mount up above thee higher and higher, and thou shalt come down lower and lower. He shall lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him. He shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. <clears throat> and all these curses shall come upon thee, and shall pursue thee, and overtake thee, till thou be destroyed, because thou hearkenest not to the voice of Jehovah thy God, to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded thee. And they shall be upon thee for a sign, and for a wonder, and upon thy seed forever. Because thou servest not Jehovah thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart, by reason of the abundance of all things, therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies that Jehovah shall send against thee, in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he have destroyed thee. Jehovah will bring a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand a nation of fierce countenance that shall not regard the person of the old nor show favor to the young and shall eat the fruit of thy cattle and the fruit of thy ground until thou be destroyed that also shall not leave thee grain new wine or oil the increase of thy cattle or the young of thy flock until they have caused thee to perish and they shall besiege thee in all thy gates until thy high and fortified walls come down wherein thou trustest throughout all the land and they shall besiege thee in all thy gates throughout all the land which Jehovah thy God hath given thee. And thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body, the flesh of thy sons and of thy daughters, whom Jehovah thy God hath given thee, in the siege and in the distress wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee. The man that is tender among you and very delicate his eyes shall be evil toward his brother and toward the wife of his bosom and toward the remnant of his children whom he hath remaining so that he will not give to any of them of the flesh of his children, whom he shall eat, because he hath nothing left him in the siege and in the distress wherewith thine enemy shall distress thee in all thy gates. The tender and delicate woman among you, who would not adventure to set the sole of her foot upon the ground for delicateness and tenderness, her eye shall be evil toward the husband of her bosom and toward her son and toward her daughter, 
and toward her young one that cometh out from between her feet and toward her children whom she shall bear. For she shall eat them for want of all things secretly in the siege and in the distress wherein thine enemy shall distress thee in thy gates. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, Jehovah thy God, then Jehovah will make thy plagues wonderful, and the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues, and of long continuance, and sore sickness, and of long continuance. And he will bring upon thee again all the diseases of Egypt which thou wast afraid of, they shall cleave unto thee also every sickness and every plague which is not written in the book of this law. Them will Jehovah bring upon thee until thou be destroyed. And ye shall be left few in number, whereas ye were as the stars of heaven for multitude, because thou didst not hearken unto the voice of Jehovah thy God. And it shall come to pass that as Jehovah rejoiced over you to do good and to multiply you, so Jehovah will rejoice over you to cause you to perish and to destroy you you shall be plucked from off the land whither thou goest in to possess it. And Jehovah will scatter thee among all peoples from the one end of the earth until the other end of the earth, and there, shall not, and there thou shalt serve other gods which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, even wood and stone. And among these nations shalt thou find no ease, and there shall be no rest for the sole of thy foot, but Jehovah will give thee there a trembling heart and a failing of eyes and a pining of the soul. And thy life shall hang in doubt before thee, and thou shalt fear night and day, and shalt have no assurance of thy life. In the morning thou shalt say, Would it were even. And at evening thou shalt say, Would it were morning. For the fear of thy heart which thou shalt fear, and for the fear of thine eyes which thou shalt see. And Jehovah will bring thee into Egypt again with ships by the way whereof I said unto thee, Thou shalt see it no more again, and there shall, and there ye shall sell yourselves unto your enemies for bondmen and for bondwomen, and no man shall buy you. These are the words of the covenant which Jehovah commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. And I realize we don't usually read this long a passage, but my guess is you have not read it and understood the depth of the threat, God says. Your liberty will be cut off, he says, if you violate my covenant, if you break my laws, if you do not worship me exclusively. Proclaim liberty throughout the land. My friends, it's time for us to start declaring throughout our land the curses of the covenant. Much of what I was reading here today, apart from the fact that the language is not contemporary, sounds like the evening news, doesn't it? All this about economic distress, about enemies from afar, about disease and proliferation thereof. God is not mocked. We have a president of the United States who defies the commandments of God and hypocritically utters religious words. It's not just the president, he's an easy target. In fact, even unbelievers and pagan people today are taking aim at him. It's not just the president. It's the whole lot of them in Washington, D.C. The Congress and the Senate and the judges that are there. And it's the court system throughout the nation and the governors of nearly all of our states and the state houses in each of them. It's Sacramento as well. And it's Orange County. It's everywhere you go. The disease has spread. And we utter all of the old slogans. We have all of the old logos and none of the substance that gave this nation its liberty. And now, as you watch the news, you ought to start saying, is that the curse of the covenant? Is that the curse of the covenant? Is this God sending one more shockwave through our nation to warn us, to make us hurt so that we might turn from our disobedience and our indifference to him? 
that we might return to the source of true blessing, that we might confess our sins and bow the knee to him? Is God in his goodness pounding on us to say, wake up before it's too late? These are rhetorical questions. I believe he is. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke, the fourth chapter. Liberty Bell has inscribed on it, Proclaim Liberty Throughout the Land. It comes from Leviticus 25, verse 10, in the midst of the Jubilee Declaration of Corporate Israel of old. I hope you find these words not only amazing, but also comforting. In Luke, the fourth chapter, beginning the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. The 16th verse we read, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and he entered, as his custom was, into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. When anybody would teach in the synagogue, they would sit down to teach, but they would stand up to read the law. So Jesus stands up, and there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, of all the scrolls of the Old Testament that could be pulled down and handed to Jesus, they hand him Isaiah, the Isaiah scroll. And he opened the book, actually he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it is written. Now listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. Anointed means Christos. He made me the Christ. He anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He hath sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. When Leviticus 25 talked about the declaration, the proclamation of liberty throughout the land on the Day of Atonement, it was but a, sh a little foreshadow of the work of Jesus, the Savior. He is the one who would come to proclaim liberty to the captives. He is the one who, de who declares, because of his atoning work, salvation from sin and the grace of God and therefore blessedness and freedom to walk with him. This is really amazing. You can imagine the crowds being absolutely hushed in horror that he says, I'm the Christ, I am the liberty bell. I declare liberty in the day of Jubilee. And he closed the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, Today has this scripture been fulfilled in your ears. How can we celebrate the symbol of American independence? How can we look at the Liberty Bell today and on other days and have any hope that we shall enjoy that liberty that the Bible says can be proclaimed throughout the land? We can only do so in the one who is the true fulfillment of the year of Jubilee, only in the one who truly can bring liberation, and that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to end by reminding you that Jesus one day had a lengthy argument with the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. He had many in his ministry. But in John the 8th chapter, we read of one that was provoked by these words of Jesus. At verse 31 he says, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jewish leaders hated him for saying that because what he was declaring is freedom comes by following me. If you're not a disciple, if you're not a slave or servant of me, then you're a slave of sin and you are not free at all. But they had no intention of following Jesus and yet they wanted to pretend that they were free. It reminds me of our national leaders today. No true heart for Jesus, but all the words and proclamations of freedom. They answered him, We are Abraham's seed and have never been in bondage to any man. 
how dare you say you shall make us free? That's got to be one of the most incredible verses in all the Bible. We've never been in bondage to any man. The Jews who went into captivity with Assyria, into captivity in Babylon, who knew servitude under Moab and Ammon and, and Assyria, all the rest, it's just incredible. They have a long history. But when, where are they when they're saying these words? What's going on right now? You remember your ancient history? Remember Rome? The empire? It had subjugated Israel. And by the way, Israel was nothing to subjugate. The Romans, it was like a, a fly, swatting a fly, little Israel, in terms of geopolitical power. And here they say to Jesus, we've never been in bondage to any man. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Verse 36, if therefore the Son shall make you free, then you'll be free indeed. In the United States of America today, we, just like the foolish Jews, continue to talk about our freedom. We relish our freedom. We pretend we've never been in bondage. But all along, we know the bondage which is humanly unbreakable, the bondage of sin and rebellion against God. And we pride ourselves in the fact that we no longer follow Christian standards. We ridicule those as rednecks and fundamentalists and dangerous people when there are individuals in our society that will stand up and dare bring the Bible to bear on some discussion or point to the Lord Jesus Christ as the King of Kings. We pride ourselves in being free and we are in bondage. And the curses of God's covenant are pounding us day by day, more and more, week after week and month after month. We face not only a national disgrace, but we live in a day when we have lost the freedom that our founding fathers intended. I'm glad you decided to celebrate the 4th of July by coming to church. Because the only hope that the 4th of July will not be a meaningless holiday is if we begin to celebrate the Sabbath freedom that we have that has been brought by the Lord Jesus Christ. We will never know freedom as a nation. Russia will never know freedom as a nation. China will never know freedom as a nation. France and Germany and Britain and all the rest, like the United States of America, will never know freedom as a nation until we know the Lord Jesus Christ as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we come to you interceding for the sake of our sinful and rebellious nation that you would stay your hand of judgment and in patience give us time to repent. We plead with you to send your spirit in great power to change the hearts of those who live with us in this great land, to turn them to righteousness, to bring conviction of sin, to humble them before the Savior, that we might corporately call out for his mercy. We come to you, Heavenly Father, and ask that you would bring revival in our day, that we might understand as a people where true freedom and liberty are to be found, that we would not forfeit the blessings of our past and proceed in reckless abandon to the destruction that we've laid out for ourselves. Do pray, Heavenly Father, that we would begin as your people to appreciate the rest you give us and the liberation that is ours this Sabbath day. To know the Lord Jesus Christ and to love him above all and to follow him whatever the cost, to honor his name and to serve him in his kingdom, to glorify him among men, spread his dominion and his claims throughout this world. I pray that you would make 
us to understand, even in this small room, in this time of worship, make us to understand that all freedom, including political liberty, rest in submission in heart and soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help us to more effectively spread that message to our neighbors, to our society, to the culture around about us. We would today, in honoring your command, pray for our leaders. We would thank you that despite the fact we have so many who are self-centered, self-serving, unprincipled, pragmatic, compromising, immoral men serving us, that you have nonetheless granted us continued freedom, continued blessing. But we do pray that you would strike the hearts of those who defy you, who would cast the cords off, who would despise the one you have enthroned on your holy hill to rule over the nations. Lord, we do ask that you might bring repentance, abject shame and sorrow to our leaders for the way in which they live by their own wisdom and govern us in a way which brings curse. Bring them to the Savior. Enlighten their minds with the truth of your word. And return us as a people to the high and holy standard of the scriptures. As our norm, not only for private or family or church morality, but as our norm for national life as well. And help us today to celebrate the remembrance of our liberty as Americans by rededicating ourselves and our communities to the source of all liberty, the one in whose name we pray, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus.